I'd like to thank Rabbi Shlomo Brody, uh, who's been putting out things. Maybe you've seen what he writes. We've addressed the things he wrote. I've never disagreed with anything that he said personally or any of his points. He's a very good researcher, and he's doing a lot of good work. I wrote a response to something that he wrote, which is more addressing the sources that he did not go into. Or basically, he was talking about how the Akronim relate to a certain topic. But I was pointing out that there used to be a whole different school of thought within Judaism. It didn't allow for this entire discussion. But it was already dismissed. So I was pointing that I wasn't disagreeing with anything he wrote or Pastor Shalom attacking. And he had written a book recently, Ethics of a Fighters, put out by Korain, Jewish Laws of uh, War and things like that. It's very good. So he has done a lot of research into these things, obviously. And he's also a columnist for uh, the Jerusalem Post, Jerusalem Compost. And uh, a while ago, and now I'm, I'm missing this thing. Okay, here it is. I'll put it on the screen. He had written about international law. This is way back five years ago. I thought he, he he did a good survey of rabbinic scholars who started addressing these issues. Is there an international law? By the way, was there such thing as international law in the 1800s? Well, the 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 we saw that the founding fathers who were living in colonial America in the 1770s discussed laws of war or certain conventions that let's say when Christian Europeans go to war with each other. They at least know not to attack women and children, right? They, they had certain boundaries, right? So we're talking about the major European powers. They, it was a cultural thing. It was a convention, like I said, that you knew to keep your combatants limited. And they criticized uh, in the declaration, the fathers uh, criticized uh, the king. The king is just represented, by the way, already. I think it would mean the, the British authorities for using uh, mercenaries, the merciless... Indian savages who you know kill men, women, and children, and also these Hessians, bringing Germans, were also sort of godless and a lot more brutal than let's say Englishmen or, or Frenchmen, the way they fight, or Spaniards, who have some honor. Okay, they know how to attack women and children. They they have certain limits, right? There were more men, I guess. So these these ideas of international law basically became more and more by convention, especially in the 1800s, where warfare was again by the European powers on the continent and around the world where they're colonizing, there were certain rules that you just think you don't do. You know, and uh, laws of diplomacy and how when one general surrenders, suddenly they have to hand over the sword and they drink tea together. And suddenly everybody's friends. On Christmas Day, everybody leaves the foxholes or the trenches and they play soccer. They have a truce for, you know, because it's Christmas. Ridiculous ideas like this. So why can't you just have a truce the rest of the time? Either way. So international law became a big deal by the way, once uh, you know World War World War One ended, and they started the League of Nations and all this talk, you know, perhaps we should have, uh, you know, ideas like uh, Geneva Conventions will actually make it official. We'll make rules of law and we'll uh, try to govern ourselves. Like I said, it's basically Calvin Ball, the evolution, and hopefully the guy will eventually realize that they shouldn't be making war with each other. But the problem is, there's still large sections of the world where they're completely uncivilized and they're still just basically barbarians in the way they treat us, which is. They almost joke. Israel's the biggest follower of these so-called laws and you know halachas, and their enemies are the, the the most barbaric and totally godless and ruleless. So it makes no sense. Either way, he was writing here. I'll put this on the screen. This article. They brought up the major, I guess, scholars. I wouldn't say Poskin because when you say Rav Chaim Hershenson, you don't think Posek. He didn't write a Mishnah Bura for you or Kitzur Shulchan Aruch even or the Aruch Shulchan, right? But 
he did discuss these things and uh he he looked at this and he believed i'll say over here believed that jews were obligated to follow such standards even in cases where they're not signers of such covenants this was in part because it would be a desecration of god's name for jews not to support progressing toward a better civilization that's a good argument what's the counter argument those of us who believe that jews are not bound by uh what do you call it international law and conventions what the hog says in geneva and all that he says it's a chil hashem if we don't go along with their they're progressing toward a better civilization. The game comes to the conclusion that this is wrong, wrong way to fight. So we have to go along with this. What's the answer? We don't, we do not take our musr from, from them. Okay. Yeah. Asov is a good faker. Remember, Asov or better yet, Asov is falsely pious. Remember the med medrash says about Asov. What do they describe him as? Pig showing his hooves. Look, I'm kosher. Or asking questions of uh, ostensible halachic sounding questions of his father how to tithe his salt right so too we don't we don't see that oh the, the the nations have come up with rules of warfare that makes things more civilized and progressive we don't care i think so we would say that uh Hershenson is mistaken in this thing and then he pointed out when jews sign covenants they're further bound to uphold them even when it's provisions are endorsed by jewish law mm -hmm. i don't know of such examples i think that's a misreading of this which is why i put together some sources which we'll see. Uh, he, he first mentions this. Uh, a remarkable case in the Talmud describes how the Jewish people suffered because King Saul had violated covenant with the Gibeonites. What's it talking about? The Gibeonites were given protection by Joshua. They swore to them. So we had to uphold our covenant. There was nothing against the Torah law in that case. Remember, I think that's, this is also uh, misrepresented. The Gibeonites could have made this offer. They didn't have to trick the Jews into making, into making this thing. Well, the point, yes, that's also a good point. But I was trying to say that uh, King Saul had violated covenant the Gibeonites. Uh, there was no necessary violation. We don't know what it was. Okay. But, well, okay, no. <clears throat> no, I'm trying to distinguish between the Gibeonites, what, what initiated this covenant with them, and what eventually happened that we abrogated it. Okay. By we, I mean, it says King Saul was somehow faulted. It's very unclear. because Hazal can't decide what did Saul do to these Gibeonites that he should not have done. But the fact is that this isn't that we entered a covenant that was against Torah law with the Gibeonites. We entered into what was actually a legitimate form of thing. And the only reason that, that we're upset at the Gibeonites for doing this is because of the pretext for doing it. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what the Rambam describes, for example. What the they say is really all that we're going to see this in the source the sources the gibeonites had an offer of peace as they had wanted on the table yoshua had sent out messengers and books it says he had megillas and sparum he had written to all the canaanites various ones whoever wants to fight fight whoever wants to sue for peace that is on our terms you're welcome here's the terms and whoever wants to run away run away three options so the Gibeonites had the sue for peace terms. They could surrender, accept whatever it is they were going to surrender, and that's it, and we would have done it. But the Gibeonites were apparently unaware of this offer, and they came and using trickery signed the surrender, misrepresenting themselves. So the Nassim and the rest of the people thought, we don't have to honor our deal with them, our oath to these Gibeonites, because we entered it under bad pretext. They tricked us into it. But the Allah was, just because they had come on a bad pretext, 
and they had used deception to represent themselves, they misrepresented themselves, the result was the same. If they had come and represent themselves as they are, who they are, honestly, we would have given them the same terms. And we would have sworn by God that we will not hurt them and all that. So that that's what it was. Uh, I think so. Uh, it's very important. So he the point here was, when Jews signed covenants, they're further bound to uphold them, even when its provisions were not endorsed by Jewish law. That's not the, What happened with the Gibeonites was not such a case. What happened with the Gibeonites was provisions were endorsed by Jewish law. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes, and by the way, we're held accountable for whatever it is. There was a there was a, a famine for three years. People, Jewish people, suffered because of what happened 400 something years later under King Saul's leadership to the, these uh, Gibeonites, these leftover Canaanim. By the way, Givon apparently they were they were not Yevusi. I think they were they were, they were heavy. One, one of the Canaanite groups. Okay, so that that was the first thing. Uh, shows that the sages condoned because it was a sanctification of God's name to set the Jewish people upheld their promises. Okay? Well, that's true. We did help upheld our promise, but this was the type of thing we were allowed to engage in. Hershenson concluded, uh, therefore, uh, that these international agreements are binding, even when the demand to acts would otherwise be prohibited. No. The original agreement was binding because it did not ask us to do anything that was prohibited. I think that's a mistake. And uh, this appeasement that happened, by the way, what they have to do, King David had to hand over descendants of Saul to be executed by the Gibeonites. That was very clearly there, a hora'at The Gibeonites did that. That was their choice. But, yes, you're not allowed to. But God had decreed it such. Apparently, the tomb, it says God, David asked God. God said, word of God. So, I'd like to uh, just point this out, emphasize this, that Rev. Hershenson's conclusion that we are, inter if we engage in international agreements, even if they demand action otherwise be prohibited. This is not an example of such. Hold on. Um, I think that, that's good enough for here. You have Rav Shul Yisraeli's uh, example. He says, Dina de Malchusadina. And that's a that's a little bit more conservative, he says. And, you know, um, it's a more moderate thing that, oh, we have to obey all sorts of, if we enter agreement, even if it's against the Torah, we still have to stick to our agreement. I would say, Lehefet, if we enter to an agreement that's against the Torah, it is completely non-binding. And we don't have a case of uh, uh, where Hashem said, oh, well, you entered an agreement that's against my Torah, therefore you have to keep it. If that were true, then we yeah. could enter into all kinds of agreements. Oh, yeah, okay, we'll do this, we'll do that. We'll yeah. Look, we don't have a party. Ain the dove or so. So we have a few minutes left. I'll put this on screen. I'm sure I don't uh, have it there. Uh, well, I, I had so much here. Like I said, we have a backlog of items over here. Let's see this over here. Mm. I can't seem to open it. This is my own stuff. It's actually in this week's Parsha. Why are we discussing this now, by the way? What does it say in, in the Torah, in Parsha's Mishpatim? You have to get rid of the Canaanites. Sorry, that's in that's in uh, Dvarim. In this Parsha, it says, Don't cut a deal with them or with their gods. Cut with them or their gods. How do you cut a deal with their gods? So the post can say, I'll read you what the mitzvah's, uh, the Rambam's formulation of this mitzvah is. The 48th thou shalt not is, she's harnu milich rotbrit, I'll share this on the screen, I'm sorry I didn't share this with everybody. You can't enter into a breed with them. By the way, this doesn't mean a treaty. All these things, but it says in the Torah, lo tich rot lahem breed. And 
it says uh, twice, don't, don't cut a deal with them, in both in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. And then we're discussing these in Halacha. Lichrot Brit does not mean an international agreement. Or even just between us and some international, I mean, many countries. I don't even mean between us and another country. Shlomo Melech's time, he was not engaging in a covenant, an international treaty that actually governed even Torah law. That was just economic. We're allowed to trade with them. If they want to have good relations with us and not attack us and have an economic relationship with us, that's totally fine. We're not obligating ourselves in any way. When it says, don't cut a deal with them, what does it mean? He says, with the kofrim, to allow them to continue in their heresies. It means they don't believe in God. By the way, at the time this was speaking about whom? The seven nations. It says, It says also in, in Devarim that. He's quoting this one. Number 187, that it's a mitzvah to actually make war with these Kananim and get rid of them. Okay, And he says, even though it says, This mitzvah of don't make a contract with them, don't make a deal with them, whatever this means, applies all the time. Even though there are no Kananim left. Why? Two reasons. Even though, even though there's no Kanana left, so there's no mitzvah to get rid of them, it we didn't know that they would eventually not be them. Kanan persisted for like a century, uh, sorry, a millennium after Moshe Rabbeinu. Secondly, there's still other people who step in for the Kanan. People who are rivals for the land are like the Kanan. We still have, like Rashi says, and the Rambam point out, you still have a mitzvah of kibusha aritz and get rid of them. Because they're, they're, you don't have to kill all the men, women, and children like the Kanan. Like we pointed out, in the Malikim, you have to kill men, women, and children. If it's another national group, so the women and children are allowed to live. And we actually see this in Hilchot's Malachim, in the sixth parak. The Rambam says that this Kritat Brit is basically the offer of them to peace on our terms, like the Gibeonites. So, yeah, there was a Kritat Brit that was cutting a treaty with the Gibeonites, but it's not the way everybody here is imagining it. That is, you know, the, the Hog will legislate how wars can be conducted and what's considered occupations and you know, illegal transfers, all these rules and what weapons you're allowed to use, et cetera, phosphorus, white phosphorus and all that. That's not what the Torah says as uh, as a treaty. A treaty is and always was, and uh, you could look at this and read this, uh, it meant that we offered them to surrender on our terms and then they could stick around if they give up the Avodah and all the other Avodahs. And they have to pay taxes and they don't have certain civil rights, they don't get to vote, they don't have a say in the government. They're subservient to us, second-class citizens. And he continues, says, What the Ramam calls Shalom at the beginning of the of, of this chapter, offer of peace, which Yeshua gave to all the Kananim, and which the Gibeonites accepted, sort of, is called a Brit. Okay? Because once they've done this, once they've accepted this properly, so they're now Geri Toshav. <laughs> they've accepted the Seven Commandments. Which, by the way, also, I says, doesn't fit with what Hershenson had written. What we entered with the Gibeonites was entirely according to Torah law. The problem was the fact that they tricked us into it when they could have just been honest and they would have gotten the same thing. And he continues with the Chemis Rishus. He points out the difference, like I just said now, that uh, killing the men, women, and children is only for Amalekim and Kananim, seven groups of Kananim. But any other national entity, you let them live. And uh, over here, he mentions uh, this Gibeonites thing. Uh, oh. Here, here's here's the important point. The the contract with the Gibeonites was halachic. It just was wrong. I'll read it here. 
Why the Gibeonites have to cheat to get into this contract? It was the offer was on the table. Because they, they had maybe saw the original emissaries who came with Joshua's offer. They'd accept it. They didn't know what the Jews were actually saying. They didn't know what we're offering them. They thought this was an offer of peace. Nassim wanted to smite the Gibeonites. Deals off. But we swore by God, we have to keep it. It says, remember, they had cut a deal with them, but it says, don't cut a deal with them. Answer, Really, the din was that these Gibeonites should be subservient. They have to pay taxes. They have to work for us. Because the Deseem had taken this oath to let them live through misrepresentation on their part, they should have punished them, but it would have been a Chol Hashem if they didn't keep this deal. Understand this. That I, can't believe, I can't believe people misunderstood this. That, once again, the Gibeonites basically got the same deal they always would have gotten. We did not give them any condition or agree to anything that we would not have agreed to that was against Torah law. The only thing was is that because they were liars, they should have been punished in some way. But we can't punish them because we already got gave them the deal. Okay? Uh, he also says, we do not offer this peace explicitly. We do not give this to Amun and Moab. Although they could still jump in and accept it. They can offer us. You know what? We'll surrender to the Jews and we'll be Gary Toshav will keep all the commandments that we're supposed to, we'll give up the Avodah Zarah thing. So, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. As for uh, Dina de Malchusa, hold on, uh, there's a lot as I put here, there's a Ramban here, it, it says, when it says don't cut a deal with them, it means to let them live. Das Mikra is a long thing about this also, you can find the same in Rashi, no one really disagrees with this. So, I, I don't think that there's any source to say that the Jewish people could ever enter into any sort of covenant to promise to abrogate the Torah. There is no such thing. Now, as for Dina the Malchusa Dina, just to know, that is a highly limited thing. It doesn't mean that anything that, oh, secular government that rules over us has has a din, so that has any bearing whatsoever. For example, the Rambam said it's very limited. Dina the Malchusa Dina means the king's right to tax, levy taxes and tariffs. That's it. We would be obligated to all the stuff that this government is obligated us to forever. Yeah. So, Dina the Malchus is such a limited term. I'll give you here. Uh, there's uh, two examples. <coughs> by the way, it's it's pointed out Dina the Malchus Dina is a term. First is mentioned by Shmuel, Shmuel the Babylonian, first generation Amora. It's not in the Mishnah. They say it's barely in the Rishami. I don't know enough Rishami, so you have to look through it. But there's very little Shmuel in the Rishami compared to the Bavli, right? So the first is that the king can set taxes and that he has certain powers, uh, he has a certain authority to deal with uh, laws of selling land, real estate laws, okay? And uh, times for when, you know, cases are adjudicated, monetary laws. Like Hazal say, you and I enter into a contract, we can make our own stipulations. That basically means the king can make monetary stipulations for his entire kingdom. That's Dina the Malkusa Dina. Okay? And uh, it's, by the way, it's not in the Mikra either. So, yeah, I just had some things copied over here. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm very surprised at this. Dina de Malchusa didn't do anything with Isra Heter. It has nothing to do with war. It never was. It's always a very limited principle for, for the time being that I, I also find it surprising that anybody would have a Havamina that we're obligated to keep so-called international law because somehow our government has agreed to do it. Okay, there's no such thing. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, this is an important one. We'll close with this. The international law regarding manslaughter. You know of Irmikla, right? How does that work? There's a something called the Goel Adam, which, by the way, apparently this law still apply now. Man kills another man. It's a mitzvah. Rama begins with, he doesn't explain the Goel Adam until a few proper later, but he says the one who's supposed to execute justice is the Goel Adam. That means the, the close relative of the, of the man who was killed. Now, if you have a person who was a wanton murderer and he'd been warned by witnesses, the court is supposed to take care of him and he's supposed to be put to death by decapitation. But most cases, you have just Gualdam is supposed to take it into his own hands. And that's kind of crazy. But the Basin even has a rule. First, the guy runs to Irmikla and to avoid the Gualdam. And then he's brought to court with bodyguards. And the court decides, no, he's actually completely exempt. No one's allowed to touch this guy. He's innocent or he's given, he's acquitted. That's called Petur. Or he is actually convicted of murder and he's put to death. And if he's considered a certain category of shogeg, he is sent to Irmiklat and told, watch out for the Gualadam, who can still kill you if you step out of line. Yeah, so don't leave the city. By the way, if you leave the city with shogeg, it's not a heter. You have to leave the city wantonly. So there's a Gualadam. And the Rambam points out, based on the Gemara, that, by the way, uh, because he's... I would say the Shulchan Aruch says this, but you know Shulchan Aruch doesn't deal with this. The Torah doesn't deal with this. The Aruch, the Shulchan Aruch doesn't deal with this. The um, there are certain people who also enjoy ear People who live among the Jews, Avikanani, Ger Toshav, they have this concept also. If the Ger Toshav kills the Jew, maybe he doesn't have a place to run to, or another uh, is just a Gentile or something like that. Whatever it may be, I'll read the inside. The Rambam says in Hilchos Melachim Melchamos. That Ben Noach Shashrad Beachat Mimitzvotav Patur Miklum. Ben Noach is shogeg in any of these examples. Like he, he shogeg worshipped idols. He's completely exempt. By the way, what does shogeg mean? It's not, I didn't know that worshipping idols is wrong. Ignorance of the law is not an excuse. It's that I didn't know this was an idol. Or I didn't know I, that this was a form of worship. That's a shogeg. Or I was drunk. That's a shogeg. Okay, not that I, I knew what I was doing, I just didn't know that this is prohibited. Okay. If a Gentile accidentally kills, remember his claim is, I didn't know there was a person there. You know, honest mistake, or whatever other shogeg. I was drunk. Okay, a tour. You know, someone, someone, someone forced me into it. That's an anus. But if he kills Bishogeg, he there's a Goel Adam. Goel Adam exists even among the Gentile world. We're saying that say, they don't have any Jews anywhere. The, it says in Timbuktu, Goyim have a concept of Goel Adam. And what else? The Ein Lo Ir Miklot Aval Dinahem Ein Mimitimoto. This Rotseach Bishgaga, he doesn't have an Ir Miklot to run away to. The Basin of the Goyim isn't supposed to put him to death because he's not a wanton murderer, not Mizid. But there is a Goel Adam out there who can potentially kill him. But they will fight him from the goel if, if the goel no if the goel if the goel kills him in this case he's he's exempt. He should be exempt if they don't. They, they still try him as murder. No, they don't. People here as murder. No, 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 they don't. They're not, they're not supposed to do that. Goel Adam. They will, but I'm trying to see what the Torah law says. The Torah law governs. By the way, 
That's why it says international law. I am surprised that people say there's international laws what Goyim have decided among themselves and impose on us. The Torah and the Talmud already contain international law, which is entirely for them and has nothing to do with us. Why well, I just read to you is Allah applying to some non-Jewish state entirely doing with non-Jews. The Torah is a contract that we have between us and God that we already agree to, but we can't break that in order to agree. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I said that earlier. We can't, we can't get into some contract with someone else or individuals to break the Torah. There's no such thing. Even though Dina Malchusa, Dina Malchusa is given to the king to govern certain monetary transactions and his own taxes. Doesn't mean you can override the Torah. And uh, he gives uh, other examples over here. He mentions in Hilkos Ritzayach, Ger Toshav Sharag at Yisrael Bishkaga, Afbishugig Harezen Erag. Ger Toshav killed a Jew, means a good Gentile, killed a Jew Bishkaga, so he'll face the death penalty for that, even if he's Shogeg. Why? Adam Muad Olam, because he's Muad Olam. He should have known better. You have to be extra good to Jews. Mechen Ger Toshav, Sharag Ger Toshav, Mipnesha Al Al Datosha Mutar Lahargo, similar to the case Rama had before. Ger Toshav kills another Ger Toshav. He thought it was Mutter. That's a type of Shogeg. But that's like, oh, I didn't know murder was wrong. Okay? Harez a car of amazing. So that's basically like wanton murder. It's car of to it. Venerogolov. So he is to be put to death. Because he wanted to, you know, his Havana was to kill this person. Gentile, not Gertoshov kills Gertoshov. That's in Eric's role. They live among us. They're supposed to be good. In Timbuktu, two people never heard of Jews before. What is the international law regarding that? They killed each other, Bishkaga. The concept of Yer is just for Jews, meaning Goy kills another Goy, Bishkaga, so the Gol Adam is licensed to kill him, and he has no safe space. What's the rule, by the way? The Rambam says, defends himself. Yeah, he can defend himself with the Gol Adam. The Torah law is, let's say you're a Jew, you kill Bishkaga, and you don't get to go to Yer but there is a Gol Adam out there to get you. What do you do? Basin will not acquit you. Basin will not convict you and, and, and sentence you. Basin will not execute you. But they also not let you go to Ir Mikla. So what does the, the halacha say? You better grow eyes on the back of your head. Because there's a Goal Hadam. Goal Hadam might, might, might not want to touch you. But I, why do I mention this now? Because we have this concept. International law says what? All, all these international laws I say. What is the international law? A person killed a Jew. What's the international law? The Jews' relatives are supposed to kill that person. The, the, even Bishkaga. Somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, there's been a Ritzitha Bishkaga among the Gentiles. So they have a concept of Gual Hadam. Vigilantism. So no, that, that's a, it's a piece of international law I don't think most, most Jews are even aware of. Okay, But this is an actual example. And this is binding, by the way. No one came along, I guess we could sum up this entire evening by saying, no one came along and changed anything. These laws were eternal. Just because we lost our experience keeping them, we haven't, things have been, you know, not, not exactly good for a few thousand years, and we become ignorant of these things, doesn't mean they're not binding anymore. And it doesn't mean that we could just suddenly create new rules and say, the old rules that, or that, that Grossman might find in a book don't exist anymore. That's it. So, uh, we hope we will pray to God that we live to see much more peaceful times, much more successful times, destruction of the enemies, the expulsion of the enemies, the settlement of the entire land of Israel. Remember what they say. This is a 
should have showed them what the rub. At the same time, the rub was telling people, what is victory? Victory means, you know, conquest, uh, expulsion, and resettlement. There were people actually saying, no, that, that's that's a ridiculous thing. You're, you're, you're a hothead for saying such a thing. You know, they're actually right. Well, at the same time, it's like, well, you should just see that, you know, they're very reasonable people who are saying this based on the Torah sources. Okay, so we should all be comfortable here. Have a good evening, have a good Shabbos. Be good. We would like to encourage our viewers to share these videos with friends and send in your responses. If you would like to obtain Birkon Nusach Eretz Yisrael or invite the rabbi for a speaking engagement, please email us at office at machonchilo.org.